Small for Enterprise, the podcast described as the squishy heart at the centre of enterprise IT. Once again, the stars have aligned and all four of us are here. And it's been a while since we managed that a couple of times in a row. But uh, we wanted to start with some follow-up from topics we discussed last time. Uh, so one was NVIDIA. So we talked about the NVIDIA hack. Uh, they got hacked. A bunch of stuff got leaked. Initially, um, maybe this was just me, but it looked like it was fairly inconsequential what had leaked. And it turns out that one of the things that leaked was some expired code signing certificates, which you might still think is inconsequential, but they're now being used to uh, authenticate some malware and Windows still accepts the expired certificates as valid. So well done, top job all round. So overall, how bad can this get? Like what's the, I mean, it's software, right? NVIDIA is not a big software player, but explain explain it to, to us for a little. Like, Okay, so those of us who've been around for a bit longer remember that when you ran Windows in the 90s, you had to be terrified of installing anything because it would freak out and destroy your system. And it was so bad that it became just best practice that every six to 12 months max, you'd blow away your whole Windows install uh, and refresh it so that uh, things would start working again. Uh, One of the things that Microsoft did to fix that, apart from some architectural changes, was that they introduced code signing. So to run code on the OS, it had to be signed with a cryptographic certificate that was validated by Microsoft as being, you know, yes, this is a legit certificate. And, you know, Mac OS does the same thing, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so then, if you want to run malware, the best thing to do is to steal somebody else's certificate, sign your malicious program with the valid certificate, and then Windows will accept it and run it. And that's exactly what happened here. The, the hacker group uh, was able to sign a remote access Trojan, and another group was able to sign a, a Windows driver, a malicious Windows driver, using these certificates that were stolen from NVIDIA. So the fact that they were originally from NVIDIA and so presumably related to graphics cards is kind of irrelevant. You can sign anything with it once it's out there. And that's that's kind of the problem. Again, this is a bit of like, hey, protect the crown jewels. You know, what are your crown jewels? I, you know, I, I think um, as time goes on, like things of these... Uh, cyber attacks are going to keep coming out that are going to haunt these companies. So I think NVIDIA is going to be dealing with this this mess for a long, long time, to be honest. And yeah, just like the other companies who had pretty significant and um, really kind of public breaches that everybody knows about. So yeah, yeah. There's, there's, there's no winning for a long time for NVIDIA here, right? Yeah. I mean, this is, you know, a more general problem. We've talked about it several times. It's not just on desktops. Uh, when we had that issue with NPM, where one developer went a little bit off the reservation and uh, overwrote a couple of his projects with uh, political messages and messed up a bunch of things. Everyone was talking about, you know, how do you manage that? Do you pin to the known good version, but then you miss out on security updates that are made until you can get around to testing them? And dependency trees, you know, there are 10,000 dependencies in, in NPM these days. You can't test individual packages realistically. So you have to choose your attack surface and defend that. Yep. Even yep. tech companies have, have voids in security, right? I mean, look at mm. Google acquiring a security company. I mean, obviously security is still in their DNA somewhat, right? I mean, you know, NVIDIA, we, we think of some of these companies as, you know, hey, they're probably secure. They have everything up, up to snuff, but... Uh, 
it's it's interesting. Yeah, yeah the Mandiant acquisition is a, a significant move by Google, a statement of intent. Anyway, we'll be back on that one for sure. But if you're responsible for security for a bunch of Windows desktops, I hope you're on top of this already. But you can configure Windows Defender to specifically refuse these stolen certs. Uh, and there are some instructions. We'll put them in the show notes uh, so that you can go do that. Something else that uh, is a recurring topic is Amazon, but this time it's not for tech reasons. Uh, Amazon are in the news because they did a 20 for one uh, share stock split, which is uh, that, that's, a, that's a big division. Uh, but I, I honestly don't have the financial competence to comment on stock splits. If one of you wants to step in at this point, I'd be very welcome. Blank looks all around. Okay, moving swiftly onwards. <laughs> but people were talking about the $10 billion share buyback, and Corey Quinn once again steps in with the, the best Amazon take, uh, saying, you know, this is A, about compensation. Amazon have been suffering from a bit of brain drain as employees leave for better compensated jobs elsewhere. And so Amazon figured out that the, the best way to do that was to spend $10 billion on buybacks and improve people's option packages. Or the negative take in his next tweet is they just couldn't figure out anything best to do with ten billion, so why not do this? I would, you know, ten billion here, ten billion there. Sooner, sooner or later, you're talking about real money. But to be to be honest, the the on the financial side, a lot of people are saying like ten billion is not big. But I think why would you do a twenty to one stock split? There was there was an article pointing out that they they need to start giving equity to many more employees, including potentially some warehouse employees. So if the share price is yeah 20 times what it is today, then potentially you could have equity packages that are a little more varied for different levels in the organization. So mm-hmm. I think, you know, we see the brain drain in the, on the tech side, but I think they're seeing the, the brain drain at every level, right? I mean, they're one of the bigger employers in the, in the U.S. now, whether it's direct or indirect. So this is all about, to me, this is more about the labor force problems that uh, exist, the, the low unemployment rate. Um, the war for talent that's out there. I mean, it's it's still like um, it, it's still real, and I think this is their way of of trying to address it. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if other companies start to do this to, yeah, make it seem like you're getting you know more options, more shares, even though the dollar sign might be the same, but it, it'll it'll have some kind of um, yeah psychological impact on how you look at those numbers, right? So that that's what I think it's more about, I, and. and yeah, it's it's happening everywhere. Yeah, and with any luck, the current stock market doldrums will end eventually, and then you'll have got a nice bunch of stock at a low valuation that you can redeem don't at you a think the, higher one. Don't you, think the, don't you think the buyback protects them some, though, right? So, you know, they they open themselves up a little bit after the split, right, for shorting and retail even a little bit more. Mike, you know this, I know. Uh, I wonder if the $10 billion is when they come in and they, you know, uh, buy back their shares to kind of, you know, uh, protect themselves, right? Last thing they want to do is do this split, and next thing you know, the stock goes backwards, and it makes it tough on existing employees. I just feel like that ten billion is nothing more than a little bit of an insurance policy on the buyback side, which is I'm sure is going to be sooner than later. They're probably not going to wait three quarters to buy this back. Just my guess. I I, I would assume so, and I think I mean, l- let's face it, with the war ongoing, the kind of implications, I you know, is the stock market done going down? Maybe they need to stop the bleeding if they want to retain employees maybe yeah and i think people are are changing job now for like that equity portion is a big piece of it and 
for tech workers. And I think people are changing jobs just to get in at a yeah lower cost base at some company that they think has potential. So, um, yeah. And Wall Street's pretty much writing off any company that doesn't make money, which is a lot of tech companies, right? A lot of tech companies with really good talent too. So, yeah, it's uh, there's going to be a bit of rebalancing here that's going to happen this year. I think this great resignation is by far not done. By far not done. No, yeah. I think it's not even close to done. I think that we're we saw some early adopters of the great resignation. And I think, you know, people moved, moved early on and, and quickly, the people that were at their wits end moved early on as soon as they could sort of breathe the air of um, outside a mask. And then, and then now we're all of a sudden in a, in a place where I think people are, are saying, well, those of them with perhaps a less urgency around the resignation now are thinking, well, okay, what's out there. Right. And, and a sort of less, um, harried way. And I, I think there's also the large push now to bring people back into the office, right? I, yeah. I, I, I've heard a lot about uh, New York where like restaurants, bars are full, but offices are empty. So a lot of people are starting to, to say, okay, time to get people back in, but people don't want to go in. And uh, yeah, we might see it all like people walk away just to remote jobs that are specifically remote. And I think that yeah. will, that yeah. will happen more than, than we realize. But I, you know, I, I, for one, don't think that's great for like, yeah, company culture and, and long term. So I don't know how that how that works out. Yeah, we should definitely do an episode on that as we've done a couple already. But uh, I think it's time that we should refresh that topic in the light of return to office starting to kick off. And hope yeah, Ask a Manager is lit up about that. If you guys read Ask a Manager, which if you don't, oh, that's if reading Ask a Manager, it's the best thing on the internet. Lilac's um, recommendation this week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. But like there's a ton of content around returning to the office. And then like really interesting things that didn't occur to me because of the nature of the work that I do, right? There's people that have had to go in all along because some parts of their job requires even something as basic as sorting the mail, right? And, and they have essentially for 12 months, 24 months, they have picked up the entire in-office slack, right? And then how, as people come back in, do you hand back those responsibilities to all the other humans that might show up and rebalance the workload and everything? And like the nuances of this are far beyond just like who's wearing a mask and whether you've got hand sanitizer out. There's, there's actually a complete rebalancing in the office space as well of works and roles and responsibilities, which I think a lot of us isn't like we're just not that aware of because we live our lives entirely in Outlook. Outlook. That's a name I haven't heard in a long time. Oh. <laughs> Outlook has gone the way of the mainframe? I wasn't going to go there, but you did. So yeah, congratulations. <laughs> Office 365, yep. Anyway, talking about more modern technology, Apple had an event, uh, peak performance with two E's. So we took a peek at their performance. And I, I'm sad. Uh, regular listeners will know I dithered for months and months and months and months about buying a new monitor. I was waiting for Apple to release the thing I wanted and eventually gave up hope and bought something else. And lo and behold, they've now released the thing I wanted. So if everyone else, you're, you're very welcome. Uh, but obviously, they were just waiting for me to pull the trigger on an LG panel instead. Uh, seriously, the studio monitor thing looks really cool. And not just because of the, the panel, which is certainly not that exceptional, but what's I don't think everyone has noticed is this thing has an A13 chip in it. Uh, that's from the iPhone 11 generation, and that's used to run the webcam. And the webcam does that center stage thing where it zooms and pans around 
that uh, you get on iPad Pros, and so I freaked Lilac out with uh, recently. That was uh, really creepy. <laughs> it's creepy because you didn't do anything. Like it's panning around, and like I think all you're doing is breathing, and it's like ah, I shall focus. I shall zoom out. No, <laughs> as long as you've told me to zoom out. When I did that dramatic zoom, it was because I'd moved my hand, and it was like oh, another person enters the chat, and oh. it's like no, no, it's just my hands, and so it calmed down. But yeah, it's. It is good, and it's good when you have kids because you know you're talking and it zooms in tight, and then the kid walks into shot and it pans out, and now you can see the kid as well. And I wish Apple would make that as a standalone webcam, but yeah. But anyway, now there is a webcam that costs a webcam. There is a monitor that costs less than several of my first cars. So well done, Apple. Although, although I will give you like the monitor is it's a full multimedia monitor, right? With mm. with the speakers, so, and- what six speakers and three microphones? It's a whole thing. <clears throat> Yeah, it's so like it's, a home it, TV studio. Kind of. That's why kind it's a of. studio. Yeah, and, and it'll work on a it'll work on a Windows machine, but it won't have all the advanced uh, like advanced features. So it's a bit. Yeah, it's just every five it. minutes it blows a raspberry. Yeah, the the problem <laughs> the problem the problem. So like Dell has multimedia monitors too, right? Or they're trying to to get that, but I think the monitor is still too small at twenty seven. I mean, it's not like you're going to buy two of those and put them next to each other. I mean, that's a bit ridiculous with an you know with a chip like that and and all that integration. So I I, I don't know. I, I mean, I'll tell you what the most impressive part of that presentation was. It was happening on Twitter, where if you tag something Apple event and you liked it, the like uh, animation was the Apple logo animation of the event. So basically, Twitter has actually started to improve things. And um, yeah, I don't know why more brands don't do that. So I I think you might see brands starting to take a little more advantage of of Mm. Twitter now. I think it was... uh, That was... Probably the most interesting part of it for me. Yeah. Yeah. Would they do it for another brand that wasn't Apple though? Yeah, uh, that I don't know, but I, I, I'm sure. I mean, everybody's got a got a dollar sign. So, I mean, who wouldn't? Yeah. Well, dollar sign or Bitcoin symbol? Then? Yeah, it's probably Bitcoin. I don't know, but maybe, maybe we're not. I just we're want not to say so- the Bitcoin symbol. I had personal offense from. Like, just like no, you're not <laughs> to do that. It's not not good. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, before we get completely derailed with Bitcoin, what else did they announce? They had the the new Mac Studio, which is basically a Mac Mini that needs to go on a diet. Uh, but it's it's an absolute beast of a machine. It's uh, there's a lot going on here. Someone did the comparison that one of these is the same uh, has the same sem- number of semiconductors as every Mac sold in 1985. <laughs> it's, a, it's quite something to think about. Uh, and so this nicely plugs the gap between the the Mac Pro that still hasn't been refreshed, that's the only one that's still on Intel chips, and they said that's the next one to be fixed, and the uh, the, the top-end Mac Mini and the MacBooks. So it's, uh, it's quite a machine. I have no need for such a thing, but it's it's an impressive feat. You know, when people can't get chips and there's still like this micro uh, chip shortage and then Apple's like releasing new stuff and it's We have available. all the chips. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's available next week if you want it. It's like that's the insane part of 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 this all i mean wow that's what happens i wonder i wonder if he was watching this event huh (laughs) yeah he needs to speed up with a whole bottle of bourbon (laughs) 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 that that could have been me i could have been a contender yeah uh the other things there was a iphone se got refreshed with some really amazing guts so that's a it's not a cheap phone because it's apple right apple doesn't do cheap we know this but it's cheaper 
iPhone with uh, bang up to date innards. And the only way you can tell is it still has touch ID instead of face ID. And the iPad's Air got refreshed as well. That gets an M1. Uh, so that's uh, getting to be a very serious machine. The iPad is in a really sweet spot. It's, there's not a bad one in the lineup right now. It's, uh, you, you need to merge your MacBook Air and an iPad and give an iPad like um, uh, Mac OS. And I, and I am all for that. I mean, just... What happened to the big one, the like tablet-y thing that was like a page size thing? Is that still a thing? Yeah, the iPad Pro, you can get that with 13-inch size. And there's debates. One of the persistent rumors is they might do, and now that they have the studio line, maybe it'll be the iPad Studio. The idea is that this would be a thing that you don't really carry around. You keep on your desk as like a drafting table type thing. Who knows? Microsoft well, Microsoft, has, Microsoft has the Surface has version of yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. So people yeah. saw that and they were like, wow, Apple should do that. Yeah. 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 Why and, don't we and, just uh, make a tablecloth? Can we make an Apple tablecloth? Just put it down on the entire. Oh, yeah, but you could make that. No, you'd get the Apple uh, cleaning cloth, the one that costs a uh, hundred bucks or whatever it is, and you, you get a dozen of those and stitch them together. It would be the most expensive tablecloth in the history of tablecloths. Quilt these <laughs> things together, and then have some sort of family game night on the whole thing. I think that's time. It's time for interlocking Apple parts. Elon Musk probably has a rug made of those. <laughs> you, you know, but but the iMac is still staying at twenty one. They're not moving the iMac to twenty seven. Twenty four. Right? They bumped it up to twenty four. But yeah, they didn't make a new twenty seven. That's that's it. This new Mac Studio plus Studio Display. That's the new uh, iMac Pro. It's too much compute for people, though. I mean, well, you yeah. get a Mac Mini, but because the thing was, you nobody gets a Mac Mini and plugs a six grand monitor into it. But now you go spend a couple of grand on your loaded Mac Mini. And another fifteen hundred on the monitor. That that does make more sense. It's once again still not cheap. Hello, have you been following Apple News ever? But more reasonable. You just Zach, use the phrase that starts to make more sense. I'm just putting yeah. that out there. Zach, see that you put a chip in the monitor, so then people are forced to upgrade their monitor. The only thing they're missing is a battery. Once they put a battery in there, then every year people will start to switch out stuff, right? <laughs> well, I mean, if they don't switch really... it out, what they'll do is about three, four years after the fact, they'll do something in the firmware after an update, and your battery will... Yeah, yeah Tim Cook pushes the button <laughs> in Cupertino. It'll accelerate the uh, drainage of the battery. We, we need to sell more. We need to sell more. Yeah, yeah. To yeah. Totally, totally. They'll, they'll, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Excellent. But anyway, now we're all caught up. The topic we did want to discuss this week is analysts. What are they good for? So all of us on the show have dealings with industry analysts, uh, but I'll start with you know my perspective from the vendor side. What it looks like from the vendor side is there are these analysts out there. There's Gartner is probably the best known. There's Forrester. There's 451 Group. There's uh, a mm -hmm. whole bunch. There's a whole bunch. IDC is one that people see a lot because they do a lot of industry coverage numbers and whatnot. And so if you're a vendor, you've got a product, you regularly brief these analysts on, hey, we did a new thing, there's a new version, there's a new feature, there's a new whatever. And you want them to be up to date so that when they write about your market, they know what's going on. And the other thing you do with analysts beyond briefings is you do inquiries where you, you haul the analysts in or more probably go to them on bended knee and say, hey, what are actual industry practitioners telling you? Uh, what are they asking you about? Are they asking about us? Are they asking about our competitors? What, uh, what are they looking to achieve? What projects have they got going on that we can build stuff for or position stuff for? And the final thing that you might do is you might do market testing or when you're ready to go to market with a new message, 
before you buy all the ads in the airports and get into Forbes and whatever, you, again, you show it to the analyst and you say, hey, this is what we're thinking of doing. Does this make sense if we're trying to reach people like this and like so in such and such an industry? And the analysts will tell you yes and no. And, you know, different analysts, the analysts are people. So they have different levels of experience, different types of experience. So it also depends who you talk to about what you're trying to do, et cetera, et cetera. What, um, one thing I want to address right up top is a lot of people who don't work with analysts regularly have this perception that, oh, it's just pay to play. The, the way you get in the famous Gartner Magic Quadrant, which is probably the fa- most famous single report that people know about, or any of the various other reports, is you just write the analyst firm a large check. And that's not, it's not true. That, that's not how it works. There is a grain of truth. You sign up for a large subscription or something, yeah. yeah. Right, that's the grain of truth behind it, because you sign up for the large subscription, and that means you get a lot of face time with the analysts, which gives you a lot of opportunity to get your message across. You're just talking to them a lot. You can, as a scrappy startup, work your way around that, and also get a lot of face time with your analysts just by being persistent or by being interesting enough that they seek you out, etc., etc., But it's not strictly pay-to-play as simple as that. And the end result is, as I say, these big reports that come out, the Magic Quadrant or whatever, and they come to Mike, who's looking to buy a thing. And then what happens, Mike? Yeah, then I get pushed all this, like, who's best, who's second, who's third. And then I'm like, these guys don't know what they're talking about. And I walk away. (laughs) But typically, typically, it's not like the... You guys refer to it as analyst, I think, because you're on the vendor side. But I, I would say like it's the it's a research company that comes to us and we look at the research and then we make a, a logical decision, right? How, how much do we put into it? You know, I, I hate to say it, but I think it's like less and less. And, you know, I I almost want to say, so so what's happened over the past couple of years? I think there's a lot more vendors. There's a lot more technologies. There's a lot more options that everybody has and if you think you're going to see all those options on a Gartner quadrant or whatever it is you're you're sadly mistaken right so where are we getting our our info I think and and this will be different if you are in Europe or if you are in the Americas I think in the Americas there's a much larger partner ecosystem and partners over the past few years have become much more or much less I should say much less tied to certain companies. So they will t- share with you what other companies are doing, what they see work, what they don't see work. And to be honest, what you're getting from those partners is like real world examples of other businesses they're selling to. Whereas when we talk to, you know, these analysts or research firms, I don't know how much real world experience is there. And and that's where now IT is starting to ask questions. Of course, they'll always impress certain companies and other companies. But then when like, you know, the rubber hits the road, there's always, um, I I don't know that they live in the real world like we do. So I I think there is a bit of, yeah, lack of trust. And and I I don't think it's pay to play, Dominic, but I think there are companies that uh, have a lot more time to deal with these, these analysts where some companies just don't. And I think there's companies who just don't care about the analyst, right? The analysts have almost become like media firms and media mm. has like this that's black fair. eye now. And that's part of the problem, right? It's just like a news article and whatever. So I, I don't know how, 
how long-term sustainable everything is unless the reputation changes and, and something gives. But yeah, I, I think there might be more value coming from the partners. And, you know, if you would have asked me this two years ago, I would have said like partners are dead. Like there's no future in partners, but I'm starting to see more and more value um, on that side. I think it depends on the partners though, right, Mike? I mean, you're probably talking, when you say partners, I mean, you're not talking uh, traditional, go ahead. Yeah, they're not. I wouldn't call it the big traditional players in the market. I would say more of your, yeah, mid-tier players. Not like the GSIs. You're not talking the big, massive GSIs. You're talking about... I don't know hmm. what a GSI is. I'm global, global systems system integrator, integrator, like an Accenture no. or Deloitte or... No, no. Because, because they still have their links to... Um, to vendors that are so they're going to push their book whereas I think some of these mid-tier partners won't push their books because they mm. don't have books they don't have loyalties just like we shouldn't right and, and that's the real hard part like you don't know anymore who's impartial or who isn't right and and mm. that's become real hard yeah can I ask though the, like this notion of impartiality just feels a little bit I'm going to push on it if you don't mind, because apparently controversy is fun on a podcast. Um, because like if I were any in any industry, in any space, and I, I grew comfortable with a set of tools, right? Like even even as a, as a home baker, I grow comfortable with a baking soda or a, or a kind of sugar or a, or a bunt pan, right? And, and that comfort leads me to have a preference for it. So if you told me to make a bunt cake, I'm definitely going to pick the pan that I have had the most comfort with because it hasn't broken apart every time I've made that cake, right? And I do have some pans that work and some that don't, right? That's probably the result of my own skill in buttering the pan, probably the result of having done this like 50 times, right? Or whatever. And, and I think the same holds true in tech. And so uh, while I might not have a financial loyalty to the tube pan and not the castle pan, right? Like I, I actually do have a preference that comes from experience. And I'm curious how you weight that in a situation like this. Right. I was going to say, when you said the partners push their book, there are two ways to view that. One is there's some sort of direct nefarious relationship, and, and that does happen, absolutely. The other is simply that they built up a practice and they have skills and they got people who are certified mm -hmm. and they can cross-fertilize between each other and exchange ex their, their experience. And so they're bringing you that expertise uh, over and above the relationship with the vendor. I Like, look, I, I think you might see, okay, the partner or um, the analyst or ha having those relationships. But don't forget the companies you're talking to have those too, right? Oh, yeah. So like, if you go like, okay, you have a company, let's say they are a Microsoft shop, and they are, you know, I don't know what else out of technology they might have, but let's say they're a Microsoft shop, you know, that means they're going to go down a certain road, and you have to like, understand that, right? They're, they're like an Azure, they're not an AWS. If you bring like, what works well in AWS to them, that that won't, but it's how do you relevant? Yeah, how do you talk to both sides of it? So yeah, you're gonna, you're gonna try to find people who have the same, you're right, Lilac, there isn't like, yeah, there's impartiality, but then again, you have to be aware of, of where you are and, and how. And, you know, there's not many that can talk both Azure and AWS, and that's no. what you kind of need in most places, I, I would 
Analysts say. are going to be impartial. Hold on. I mean, they and they should be, right? I, I think the problem, Mike, you touched on it, is just experience. They should I mean, be. I, I, they should be. Come on. But they, yeah. they really are. They just don't have the experience. And so which means they can be easily swayed one way or the swayed. other. I mean, I've yeah. known many analysts that have never been in a data center, but they're providing data center guidance to organizations making seven-figure, eight-figure purchases. I mean, that's, and how do they do that? They regurgitate something they've been told that they um, may exactly. or may not understand. Exactly, and then the, the, the whole theory is, well, well research, our research, speak to all the vendors. Well, you, know, you have to have some experience to filter through what the vendors tell you because it's not all accurate. So I think it comes down to experience more so than, than allegiance, in my opinion. I think, And I think on the partner side, Mike, you touched on something. But you just It depends on the you – know, I've worked for partners. I've worked you know, as an analyst. And I, I tell you, I just I, – it, it, as long as you do the right thing and you're um, – you can kind of pick out those that are um, kind of trustworthy, transparent. You know, they're looking out for, you know, the ones that are intelligent will look out for the customers because they want to build that relationship and keep it long term, right? Yeah. One thing, one thing that at least I've noticed, and yeah, I, I can't tell you why it's happening or how it's happening or what. Like, so a lot of them, I mean, YouTube, podcasts, all, all like all this social has changed some of the equation and a lot of analysts are publishing or I shouldn't say publishing, but they're putting out a lot more out there on podcasts and mm-hmm. um, YouTube videos and they've broken away from their traditional. Um, yeah. Is your big tra- desk busting report. Yeah, yeah it, it, exactly. So there's a lot more information coming from there. And I don't know if that's because, you know, the Gartner's IDCs are like losing these people and these people now are starting their own practice, but there's a lot of that happening. Right. And I, I and I think we, we tend to get a lot of value from, from those people. And I, I don't want to say that they're more trustworthy, but there's something there in their message. That's a bit different, maybe because they don't have to push a message or, whatever. But I, yeah, I, I, I just don't know the inner workings. Right. But um, that's starting to become valuable too. Yeah. I think, no, you're, I don't think it's any secret that, yeah, they have to follow in certain parameters. I mean, I, I wanted to write research notes that didn't go with um, our research firm stance. And then I was told, you know, that's, that's not the stance we take. Right. So don't, uh, mm-hmm. I, you know, so I don't think I, I don't think I cannot say that. I think that's just a fact. So, I mean, I think you're right, Mike. I think there's definitely, I mean, uh, I remember one time, I mean, I'll just, I'll say it. I wanted to write a note saying the whole, you know, in data centers, you have spinal leaf switches. I wanted to write something saying that the leaf switches would die. They wouldn't be around in five years because, you know, you have smart, you know, nicks and everything was going in a different direction. You just needed a spine. You can stitch stuff together, right or wrong. I wanted to write this and push the envelope and was told not to. So, I mean, I, yeah, I think you're right. I think there's probably some, there's guidelines anywhere you work, right? Lilac, you can't just go out and say stuff contradicting no. your company, right? I mean, I think that's no, just there's how, absolutely how guidelines. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. But I think that like, but you also think, know that as a client from either side, from the vendor side, from the practitioner side. If you go to Gartner, you get the Gartner view. If you go to Four Five One Research, and which made an interesting move, they're now part of S and P uh, Standard and Poor, so it melts really. Off. Yeah. yeah, I think it's been that way for a year or so, something like that. A year and a half or so, yeah. a year and a half. I think it was summer of 2020, I remember that, because I had a contract with them, yeah. But their for, bias is extremely clear, right? I think Gartner's yeah. bias is sort of essentially like we're going to walk the middle of the most vanilla line in the world and sell to the financial services CIOs and everybody else, 
you know, who hangs along with them. And then I think when we look at 451, I've always remembered them as being the ones who had their eye on the shiny new toys and the startups and the venture market and all of these other pieces, right? And so their report that, you know, hits my inbox every day is about acquisitions and about transactions and about new startups and, and, and the new stuff that often flies below the radar of Gartner because they just don't have the appetite to do a million tiny blogs. What they want is do the big reports and then an occasional cool vendor report, right? Um, and Forrester sort of runs in the middle a little bit um, in, in a number of ways. IDC does the numbers, right? We all know, like we know where we're going for the different kinds of information that we're looking for. Um, the thing that I find interesting, at least in, in our market, is that there's a number of vendors themselves that sort of do routine cross-functional reports or the same survey over and over again. And that sort of vendor-driven research, which is quantitative market research, but if it is done sort of longitudinally over the course of a decade, becomes actual truth over time, right? If you're going to spend enough to do a report with a thousand responses, on the same questions with a reputable quantitative research firm, at some point you have truth and that's a different kind of truth, but I think it's real. So, but let's, I just, let's all be clear. They're publicly traded companies that we're talking about. They're there to make a profit and they're going to get their revenue in different, in different ways. So like, look, if we look at a Gartner, they get a lot of money out of conferences. I mean, look at that. Hey, I worked at a startup. You did too, Dominic. The last startup that was acquired that I was at, they wanted $90,000 just for one conference right and then they push you and push you for more and more so they have their revenue intake everybody gets their revenue no doubt about it 451 idc even forrester right they'll do oh, yeah, they're not sponsored, for, for they'll the do sponsored research notes so your company and they've gone into consulting they've What's gone that? into cons they've gone into consulting too right so instead of telling you what you should do they're like we can do it for you you know and that changes the whole dynamic of of the discussion at that point too and it's, it does. And I mean, I can tell you there's been a brain drain in, in a couple of these firms. We're not to mention names, but you can look around. You can look on LinkedIn. You can see what's going on. People are leaving. So you have to be careful. Now, the theory is there's enough structure in place that you can backfill them and this new person and all, whatever, right? But uh, they're all here to make money. That, that's the bottom line. They're all publicly traded. They're here to make money. Now, if they say they make money out of research, and let me tell you, when it comes to data, you can spin it a hundred different ways. I have had internal discussions and, and disagreements, right? Because you can take, well, hey, how are you getting to this fact or what you think is uh, this this data point? Oh, we just took, you know, 500 client, you know, uh, interactions and 500, 300 of them did this or that. And you can, you can, you it's like anything yeah. with data. You can spin five different stories. I'm well, and that's yeah. where the individual analysts brand comes into play as well as the, the, the analyst house they work for. The single analyst, I'm going to name Lydia Leong, the cloud pundit herself, who has a very strong personal brand that she could take with her tomorrow. If she left Gartner, her customers sure. would follow Lydia. Um, I'm sure that she's also built up a, you know, a practice behind her that would take over. Um, but she has that respect because she's been there, she's done that, she has been inside the data center, and she's built up a reputation for integrity, uh, for calling out stuff that was not true, and for when she made an out there claim for backing it with the data. And, and there are a ton of analysts I could also name, it's just uh, Lydia happens to be particularly prominent and sprang to mind. Um, and that that's the the other angle to it. It's not just because it's, it's Gartner, because it could be J Random Intern, at Gartner, who wrote the report, and that will not have the same weight as if it has Lydia Leong's name on it. That's right. Yeah. 
I think there's also an approach difference. Um, you know, when you talk to, um, you know, these research firms, when we talk internally and when we, you talk to um, anybody in IT, typically the words you hear are like, I think, I believe. When you it start depends. Talking, That's yeah, it depends. Yeah, <laughs> but these research firms, what's starting to happen a lot is like, we're starting to hear like, you need to be doing this. You need to be doing this. You like, it's almost like, hey, hey, company A, if you're not on this road, you're missing the whole thing. And, you know, like, then you start to think like, hey, do I want to be like a vanilla um, company like everybody else? And now I'm going to use this technology. I'm going to implement these processes. And like, what's going to set me apart from all the other people? in in this yeah. in this world and our customers and, and it's like they're gonna vanilla coat everybody and and this is what comes out so you're you know I, I think there's a lot to be said about companies that have you know very technical it folks who can do some critical thinking around what they're listening to what they're hearing and i think you're never we will never have an open and honest conversation with any analyst who comes out and says you need to be doing this because even if i shoot like Hey, I don't believe you because of a like you start to challenge the facts, like like Zach was saying, they will get very defensive and either shut down or move away. Where a partner will say, like, oh, I see your point. Maybe we should talk to these people, these people. Yes, we see this. Like it's completely different. Completely different. It's all about the conversation. But and now just to be clear, analysts are you're you're taught any good analyst will tell you they're taught to you must do this. You need, look at the research writings. It doesn't there will never be a research note that says it's probably a good idea to do this. You're flat out taught. That's what you say, right? You got clients want to be told what to do, and that's why they reach out to these analyst firms. They want clear direction. So you're you're taught to say, "Hey, Mike, you must do this to survive in business in three years, whatever, whatever, whatever." Right? Yeah. But I agree. You probably right? it doesn't get... make it right, but just know. Yeah, a lot of times we're we're calling like uh, one of these analyst firms to validate what we're hearing and confirm what we're hearing or confirm like our decision. And sometimes it's like completely against. And then you hear their argument you're like, oh, these guys have no idea what, what's happening in the real world. Yeah. Or you'll say like, hey, we actually, yeah, we got it right here. Let's go, you know? So it, it happens on both ends. It's It's kind of funny, so. Yeah, it's a way of taking the temperature. And again, the person you have in the room and the data they bring to back their opinion matters hugely to that as well it's not just the brand uh of the company that they work for but yeah it can be as you say and, and as i said at the beginning it can be you know this is what we're planning to do do you like it do you not and it doesn't mean you take their opinion uh unconsidered you you map that onto you know why don't they like it and maybe you say okay this, this person is full of uh something and i'm not going to respect their opinion i'm going to go ahead with what i was doing anyway and maybe you say ah oh, they make a good point i do need to incorporate that into my planning, my messaging, whatever it happens to be. It's, I just uh, thought it was an interesting conversation to have, especially to hear your perspective, Mike, from the from the other side. All this work, all this budget that we spend <laughs> on yep. shaping analyst opinion, it's good to know that it doesn't get completely disregarded. No, not completely. Just you know, partly. 80%, yeah. Partly. <laughs> in, in the circular filing cabinet. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. Excellent. So... That conversation actually went a little bit long. Lilac already gave her recommendation. I'll save one that I had. Uh, but it's been a great conversation. Uh, we'll be picking this up, no doubt, as well as the return to office conversation. But in the meantime, you can follow the show on Twitter at Roll4Enterprise with a 4 or on our LinkedIn page, and the links are in our show notes. The theme music is by my good friend Renato Podesta. 
please do send us suggestions for topics, guests, uh, analysts that you like that we can discuss on future episodes. And we will talk to you then. Thanks for listening. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Thanks.